0: Hey listeners, Sarah Perla here. This episode is on opioid addiction, so use your discretion.
1: Again, I think every family, one way or another, uh, experiences this.
2: I've done every drug pretty addictively, and uh, nothing compares to the hold that heroin has on, on you, nothing.
3: My hope in all of this work that I'm doing is to shatter the stigma, especially within our church.
0: This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. Today's episode is on addiction, especially the current crisis of opioid abuse in our country and how it affects families. We're going to hear personal stories of addiction, recovery, and what we can do as a church to help.
1: In the Diocese of Arlington, I thought it was very important to address the opioid crisis because it impacts everyone. As we know, people of all ages, all faiths, it impacts so many people. Uh, No group of of people can escape its horrific power over us.
0: This is Bishop Burbage.
1: I am Bishop Michael Burbage, the Bishop of the Diocese of Arlington. I am also the Chairman of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on Communications.
0: I can hear your skepticism, y'all. What could a Catholic bishop have in common with families dealing with addictions?
1: As a young student in high school, an extended family member was really struggling um, with alcoholism. And uh, it was sad. You know, uh, what can you do to help and to support? And when is the time for tough love and that balance? And so, uh, you know, as a young teenager, wanted to help everyone, especially a family member, My dad suggested, why don't you do some research on on, on this? And at the time my dad suggested it, it became a possible topic for a religion assignment in my religion class that was due in high school. The teacher gave me, okay, here's some things you can do some research on. I said, well, how about if I do this? I figured, okay, that will make my teacher happy and certainly respond to my dad's suggestion. And so I really did, uh, as a young student, this significant research on on alcoholism and uh, you know AA and and other responses to it, so I, it was very helpful.
0: He saw firsthand the effects of addiction, not only on the person, but on everyone who loves that person.
1: You know, as the years went on I, and I became older, in my extended family, uh, as drugs, other drugs were becoming more available, and uh, reality, uh, loved ones became addicted, um, and as I say families are impacted Uh, you love them you want to make sure that they never are convinced anything other than you love them but there becomes the moment where you you have to say there's a tough love they refer to it as where okay for you to stay in this house or for you to uh, receive our financial support today here are some conditions and It's hard for parents, it's hard for nephews and nieces and sons and daughters, whatever, to say that that's it. But as we, I'm sure most of us know, sometimes it's only when we allow someone who's addicted to really, as they say, hit rock bottom, do they get to the point where they're able to acknowledge, I need help. And then that's when the family must be ready. Okay, this is what we are waiting for and we are here to help you and we are going to walk
0: with you. Let's prove that right now. Rock bottom for both Dan Buckley and Brian Peck was prison. This part of our episode comes courtesy of Zoe Murray and the Arlington Catholic Herald. Here's Dan.
2: So in June of 2017, uh, I was arrested for possession of a Schedule I narcotic, which was heroin. I had a probation violation and a warrant out for me, and I was basically on the run. I ended up going to jail, and in jail... um, I kind of had a, I don't want to say an epiphany, but I started coming to God. Honestly, I I came to God for help and he answered. And I kind of had a realization that um, he never left me. I just forgot about him. Uh, So I ended up being sober in jail. And it was the first time I was truly sober in my life. And I decided to make a change, and take advantage of any opportunity that would be provided for me to get my life back
4: together.
0: Brian's is a similar story.
4: So I was also using heroin for a few years, and um, I wasn't working at the time, and I also had warrants out. I was in a lot of trouble for different charges, and um, I was on the run. You know, I slipped up. The police came to my house, and I... It was kind of like a cry for help. Like, I, I wasn't going to get clean, and I knew there was going to be a point coming soon where I was going to be arrested. So I basically gave up the fight inside, and I was just like, they're going to come get me. And I almost like, like, I need this. Like, I, like I'm going to die. You know, that's how I felt. I was like, I'm on the verge of death with where I'm at in life.
0: Dan and Brian are in a sober living house in recovery. Their lives today are very different from what they could have been. As Bishop Burbage learned, opiates have changed the drug scene dramatically.
1: So in the summer of um, 2017, it was very apparent to me that the 21 counties here in the Diocese of Arlington uh, had an opioid crisis similar to the rest of the country. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. And so we were also, sadly, and word would come to me from our priests, uh, seeing more funerals in our parishes Uh, with young people dying of opioids.
0: The Virginia Department of Health reports a 200% increase in opioid-related deaths from 2012 to 2016.
1: So very, very alarming. The number of deaths due to the overdose of opioids, including fentanyl, heroin, prescription opioids between uh, 2011 and 2016 within our diocese, again, is, is very, very concerning. There were 141 deaths in the diocese in 2011 uh, due to this crisis. And in 2016, there were 387. So uh, the reality is uh, staggering. And it, it cries out for a timely response with that great sense of urgency.
0: What is it about opioids? Why is it different? Here's Dan again.
2: And it is not comparable. I've done every drug pretty addictively. And uh, nothing compares to the hold that heroin has on on you. Nothing.
0: Dan was put on opioid painkillers after a car accident. He had broken ribs and a cut spleen. He needed pain relief. But this, this was amazing. It was like all of his problems just went away. I suspect anyone who's ever gotten a prescription painkiller like that can relate, even a bishop.
1: I mean, I recently, you know, had a medical procedure and they put you on this, the painkiller and you need it. You need it in the beginning and it works. Yeah, it's amazing. This is pretty good. So unless you, when you begin that, you have to say, okay, the goal is I, I am done with this. In fact, try to get off it sooner than even what the doctor tells you. That's what I tried to do. Yeah.
0: A lot of people who suffer from opioid addiction started on legitimate, probably necessary prescriptions. 80% actually. Here's a story about a young man in that situation.
1: So needing to get back to work soon. He kept taking the painkillers because he didn't want to miss work and he needed to take them in order to get to work. Uh, And so he became addicted. And once he could no longer get prescription refills, he started buying them on the streets. Now the danger, the threat is, is increased, of course and losing his job and his family, you know, were torn apart and then he started to sell opioid. See, it's a a drastic cycle, right? And so he was caught and arrested and uh, he's in our prison ministry program now in recovery. So there's a good story here. At the end, he entered the Catholic Church and he's doing his part now to, to help others. So there is always that hope of turning this around, but it's not always the case.
0: Let's talk about what this does to a family. The
3: family is a system, right? The family is very much connected. When I do my presentations, I often will bring these giant dominoes that I uh, made, and I will knock the dominoes down to show that when somebody in the family starts using a substance, they kind of knock down everybody else in the family they don't mean to. Another way that I describe it is sort of like a tornado. When addiction enters the family, it picks up everything in its path. It knocks everybody down, and that's because we're all connected. The family is so close that they're emotionally connected, and there are just so many things that happen. You you can't help it, really, biologically and psychologically. There are so many things that happen, and that's why it takes so much work to get beyond that, to get to a place where you can be effective rather than contributing to the problem, really.
0: This is Nina Marie Corona. My name is Nina Marie Corona. I am the creator
3: and facilitator of the We Thirst series, which is an educational uh, retreat-style program on addiction from a Christian perspective. And I'm also the uh, founder and executive director of A Fire, which stands for Active Faith, implementing relief in the epidemic.
0: And that's sort of the action program that evolved out of the We Thirst series. About 10 years ago, Nina's daughter was a senior at a Catholic high school, just a few weeks away from graduation.
3: She became exposed to pills by one of her classmates. And she kind of rapidly spiraled into addiction and uh, uh, it switched to heroin addiction at some point.
0: Nina didn't see any signs of drug abuse until she looked at her daughter's Facebook page.
3: I mean, I just, I panicked. I knew nothing about drugs. I did teach my children everything about drugs that I did know as they were growing up. I was a Girl Scout leader. Uh, I I kind of showed them pictures of people who had mouth cancer. I did all of those things. Uh, I'm sure I taught them. I gave them books and things like that, but I never really thought this would happen. And I didn't know anything about it. So I just went into a panic. And I probably did a lot of things,
0: you know, in retrospect that I shouldn't have done. But we were just trying to save our daughters. I never thought it would happen is probably the common theme for families who have to face addiction.
3: And and we really didn't know where to begin. I think one of the first things I did, believe it or not, truly was go to a priest friend who told me to go to support groups. And so I think I may have started right from, at some point, right in the very beginning with a Naranon support group, which is a 12-step group for family and friends of those who are suffering from addiction.
0: Often it is the parents of someone struggling with addiction that show up at the parish or diocesan door for help.
1: I talked to uh, a mother who lost her son uh, recently. Despite his involvement with several programs, uh, he finally overdosed you know, in and out of programs and trying his best, uh, you know, trying, He he wanted to free himself from this.
0: But the ones who come forward are probably just a small proportion of those who are struggling. There's a
3: terrible, terrible amount of guilt. Parents go through the stages of grief, even if the child is still alive. I think the first thing I felt was guilt. What did I do wrong? And I would, I probably still do that truthfully you know, keep thinking over and over again in my brain, could I have done this? Could I have done that? So guilt. And then there's self-blame. Uh, there's a great deal of shame. There's anger and resentment. You know, when you start thinking back of all the things you did for your children and then you start wondering, well, how can they do this to me? And then, like I said, there's a great deal of grief, you know, at the loss of what you thought would happen and, and what should happen.
1: Emotionally, uh, families are are being drained wanting to do everything to help their loved one and feeling so inadequate
0: Brian Peck was forced to see this pain up close
4: I put my mom through a lot during my addiction um I really really did a number on her just horrible I was just a horrible son on my addic- on when I was addicted to heroin and um to the point where she actually got a protective order against me so I couldn't go back to the house she was afraid that she would come home from work and I would just be dead in my bedroom. And I realize now that was actually a really good possibility.
0: Brian's mom had to set up that boundary for herself. That is a hard thing to do. It's so complex. If it was that simple, there wouldn't be a bunch of hopeless, you know, people running around stressed out. I mean, it's it's very complex. Parents, siblings, everyone has to find a way to cope with an addicted loved one. And sometimes that can lead to more trouble
3: either the siblings or the parents, start using substances themselves, never intending, of course, to become addicted, but maybe at night they start to have a glass of wine because they're so nervous and so stressed out over the horrific things that are happening. And before you know it, they become addicted. So I've seen, I've seen
0: that happen. It affects every relationship in the family, perhaps especially the parents' marriage.
3: Oh my gosh, you know, addiction
0: divides families.
3: Absolutely, it takes a great toll on the marriage. if it's a child, now we're talking about a child here. So if it's a child, the marriage is absolutely impacted because each spouse has to process this in their own way, and it's going to be very unlikely that they're going to process it at the same time in the same way, right? So one of the the spouse, you know the husband, let's just say, may decide that he wants to handle a, a particular crisis in one way. And then the wife says, no, 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 that's really dangerous. We shouldn't do that. Or maybe the wife still has a lot of anger and she wants to handle it in a different way. Well, the child's life is at stake here. And so both spouses are going to be really emotionally charged. And it takes a toll. It takes a toll on the marriage. It takes a toll on the entire family. It's amazing how relatives will come in out of nowhere i mean you've got the aunts you've got the uncles you've got the grandparents even great grandparents everybody becomes involved and it really can divide families
1: and finances too yeah of course uh the finances that that would involve we always want the best of treatment uh for someone but it it comes out at a cost
0: there are spiritual costs as well how could god let this happen When I started going to
3: the support groups, there was a real sense of comfort there because these were people that understood. I could talk openly about it. I didn't have to feel that sense of shame. The people that I usually hung out with, they didn't understand. I couldn't really go to the church, especially back then. Things have really changed a lot now, which is, you know, evident just by that you and I are having this conversation. But 10 years ago, this was even more taboo than it still is. And so... There was a great sense of comfort in going to those rooms and being able to talk openly and try to come to some solutions. And I also found faith in those rooms that I I didn't expect because I didn't know anything about these support groups. I didn't know that these were
0: spiritual programs and that the programs were based on the faith of the people there. The number one step in 12-step groups is to accept that you are powerless over the addiction. And for family members, They need to recognize that they cannot control the choices that their loved one is making.
1: Many times parents uh, will speak to me about one of their sons or daughters who is paralyzed by this addiction is not making progress. Um, They feel many times responsible. They feel like it's their fault. Uh, What do we do wrong? And I would always encourage parents to realize that uh, these drugs are so powerful, and they can get a grasp of someone in a way that we could, we could never have imagined. And the addiction is not a result of something that the parent failed to do. It's always a certainly a combination of factors. We know that uh, sometimes certain people are prone by their own makeup to become dependent. Uh, On such drugs, parents cannot put on their own shoulder, you know, that responsibility because no parent is perfect. Uh, We all make mistakes throughout our family lives, and wish we could have said something different. Or, or but the the addiction to opioids is not because of one thing that ever occurred or didn't occur. And so, I want to say to parents, please don't put that kind of weight on your shoulder. You know, we call in your own life the, the many sacrifices you've made for the children, the many ways that you've tried to love them and continue to love them and never stop loving them. And then know that if you are able to say, we, we have done our best. We have tried to provide everything possible. Then all we can do at the end is to, in great faith and trust our child to God's care. If family members, especially parents, begin to you know be filled with you know guilt or or shame or put all the burden on them, then they're not going to be at a stage where they're going to be strong emotionally and physically to continue in whatever way possible to allow this therapy this healing to continue so throughout it all, parents and family members they need to stay strong in body and soul and spirit so don't lose your spiritual life be there for each other communicate you know don't hold it all in and ask for the help that you need too because this is a great burden for anyone to carry but i ask those taking care of of those with this addiction to also take care of yourself Uh, you have to take care of yourself also
0: there is hope otherwise i would not be doing this show because it'd be too depressing. We'll start with Nina.
3: The research series was actually my integration project for Loyola University Chicago. By that point, now my daughter had been on this cycle of relapse and active addiction for years, which is typical for addiction. I had pursued my education in theology while I was studying alcohol and drug counseling. So when I had to do an integration project, it just naturally pulled together everything and We Thirst was what came of that. It was the combination of everything that I knew and experienced with addiction and everything that I knew and experienced about my faith all came together into this beautiful educational retreat series. And I had to do it. It was just a requirement. I didn't know that this was going to be a ministry.
0: I had no intentions of that. This is such a God thing. Nina just had to do an assignment for her theology program, and now it's a thing. That is the Holy Spirit at work. And when I did it the first time, it was
3: so healing for people. I just knew. I knew that it was something special, and it started to be requested word of mouth.
0: The people who attend Nina's five-night series, Reflecting on Addiction in Light of Jesus Christ, called We Thirst,
3: Leave with Hope. When people come, they consistently come terrified. They come ashamed, they come quiet. If they could put a bag over their head, I think they would. They're very afraid to walk in the doors because they're afraid that somebody will see them there. And this happens consistently. Well, by the fourth night, people are beaming. I, I hand out forms for evaluations until I know what they feel because they tell me, they'll say, I'm no longer ashamed. Uh, My hope has been renewed. You know, I feel peaceful again. I learned that I have to expand my heart. I learned that I need to be more compassionate. They feel more more loving, less judgmental, and more hopeful. And that's the most, maybe the most important thing for me, is the hope.
0: It's not like a magic wand waved over suffering. It's work. But it's God's work. We are his instruments.
3: I can't say very simply, oh, the hope comes from God. I always say that the series is so authentic. It's a very real human Christian program. And the hope comes from all of it. We look at our biology. We look at our psychology. We look at how we relate to each other. And then we look at our spiritual nature. And when people get this whole big picture of who we are as children of God um, and how we how we walk this earth and the ways that we try to cope with the difficulties on this earth, we just all feel that we're all the same. You know, we're we're not so different after all. We may have different ways of coping, some healthier than others, but we all try the same ways. And I think when people realize that, they feel this beautiful connection to God
0: and to each other and they just feel healed and hopeful. And after the We Thirst series caught on people wanted to do more. So Nina started a fire. Links to both of these will be on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. You know, if we would all bring our lights into the darkness, if we would
3: come out and do these works of mercy, whether they be small things or large things, you know, I just think we could light up the darkness of the epidemic. And I know that sounds very cliche, but I've been in the darkness. And I say this from experience because people have done it for me. They can take me from the depths of darkness where I think I can't go out there and I can't say another word about hope, and they can put the hope back into me. And we need to do that for one another.
0: The works of mercy never go out of style, y'all.
3: I think the church is going to make the difference in the epidemic. And when I first started saying that, people thought I was insane. They're like, why? You know, why not the politicians? Why not this person? Why not that person? Because we claim to be the people of God. We claim to be the body of
0: Christ. We are the bearers of hope. If we put that into action, just imagine what we can do. The Diocese of Arlington is on board. They want to be in there with people.
1: As the Church, uh, we are the instrument of the continuation of the healing ministry of Jesus, uh, who, as we read in our Gospels, spent so much time uh, with those who who were sick, paralyzed by many forms of addiction and illness and whatever. And he was always there to show his great love for them and ask them you know, for the faith to believe that he could heal them. And so the church must continue this ministry. And so we do in so many beautiful ways in our Catholic church, uh, our care for the elderly and for the sick. And now in this year of 2019, uh, one of the greatest issues facing us in society is the opioid crisis. Well, then the church has to be right, right there. Because Jesus would be right there. That's where Jesus would be, seeing all these deaths and all these addictions and sufferings. So the church needs to be there.
0: What does that look like?
1: What I did, I asked our Catholic Charities office to take the lead. And to begin by organizing a conference in the fall with very gifted speakers with an expertise in dealing with this issue, discussing the problem, uh, the responses that parishes could offer, the spiritual aspects of the disease, and... The family response. What what do family members? It proved to be uh, very uh, helpful. And I also at that conference uh, led a, a prayer session asking the Lord to bless us and to heal us. So prayer, of course, was at the heart of the conference beginning and at the end.
0: That conference was in 2018 and the reason I got in touch with Bishop Burbage in the first place.
1: You know, I always remind people when we see the miracles of Jesus recorded in the gospel. The evangelist very rarely, if you notice, very rarely highlights the miracle itself. It Highlights the faith of the recipient. Lord saying to the people, the person, do you believe I can do this for you? And so we want to get to that point where we do believe that the Lord's power and healing love is stronger than this addiction. So we believe that. But then it has to reflect itself in visible, concrete ways of, and these are the tools or these are the resources that God gives us to be his instrument of
0: So, for example, there are Catholic Charities Mental Health Clinicians in 17 parishes scattered throughout the diocese, not just one office. The counselors had to be trained specifically on opioids by experts, which includes knowing when to refer someone to an inpatient program.
1: And then we created a listing of resources. Uh, so families find help at whatever stage they're in, from detox to intensive outpatient to less restrictive support for the addict, but also for the whole family. And it's going on, a, it, on our website. It will soon be available to pastors and professionals.
0: Catholic charities can't do everything. Let's talk about parishes.
1: Our next step is to form parish resource committees with passionate social workers, addiction specialists, medical professionals, parents, and others appointed by their pastors to assist the community and whose families are struggling with this issue. So, within every within every parish, uh, these are these there are experts out there. And if we ask for help, you know, we need your help. You know, whether the pastor standing up at the ambo or putting an announcement in the bulletin, this is the committee that we need with this sort of expertise. I am a hundred percent assured, people will come forth to volunteer their services and to help others. So I really believe these parish resource committees are going to be very, very uh, important because the suffering, they need help. They need accompaniment and prayers and resources, both with those dealing with the addiction and also the families.
0: And especially when you're doing something new, it's always good to share ideas and experiences.
1: And then we will also have quarterly meetings organized by Catholic Charities for people throughout our diocese to share best practices. Here's what's worked in our parish. Uh, Here's what's worked in my family. Here's the training I received. I'd like to share this information with you. So to create a diocesan support for best practices, I think, will be helpful.
0: I don't know about you, but I was really impressed by how much Arlington has thought this through and how clearly Bishop Burbage cares about his people. I got a distinct, sheepy smell from him. Get it? sheepy
1: one of the strong commitments and uh, of our responses and initiatives is to be careful not to allow any stigma regarding the the need for help because it is sometimes very difficult for people to acknowledge you know my my spouse or my parent or my child uh, has this addiction but we want uh, the faithful throughout our diocese to say that is not a stigma that's a, a, a child God who many times because of very, very difficult circumstances and things that no one could have predicted has, has been grasped with this, a hold on with this addiction. Uh, but this is a person we love and this person is not defined by that addiction. You know, it's a person, the child of God. And so as Christians, we all know we cannot heal. We cannot heal or grow without the love of Christ. And so we are all dependent on help. Uh, we, We all have situations, crosses we're carrying, problems. And the Lord never wants us to carry them alone. He never wants us to carry our cross alone. He says, I'll be there with you. And he is. And sometimes his presence is revealed through other people.
0: So let's end this episode with the hope that we can see in Dan and Brian. Remember how Brian's mom had a restraining order on him?
4: since i've been sober and clean and um my mom's dropped that protective order and i can now see her and every time she sees me she smiles and stuff and we hang out and we laugh and it's it's literally the best feeling in the world
0: and dan what has he done to recover
2: that's why i go to meetings every day that's why i have a sponsor that's why i have a sponsee that's why i i changed everything i changed my people places and things i had to I mean, that's the only way I knew that would keep me sober because I tried to do it myself and I couldn't do it. Before I got arrested, I checked myself into detox to try to get sober because I just couldn't do it anymore. And I, I left detox. I, I walked out after three days because I was so sick and I just I couldn't do it myself.
0: And why is he willing to share this publicly? Zoe Murray asked. Want to add or say anything else?
2: I mean, there is hope. That That's the key. That's what people need to know is there is hope. I mean, I I got to see it in other people, and that's why I do what I do today, honestly. I think that would have been very beneficial to me to see somebody that had come out the other side, kind of like we're doing right now. It would have been so beneficial because I would have had hope.
0: And here's the thought you don't hear every day.
2: I can honestly say going to jail saved my life.
0: There's so much more to say, but as usual, this is just a little encouragement to get involved and help where you can. To end, here's how Nina feels about interviews. This is just the most awkward thing on the like. I'm, I cannot believe I'm sitting here talking to you.
3: Like this is unheard of.
0: If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything, with the notable exception of the music, which was composed and produced by Michael Taylor.
1: Hello, this is Michael. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks, everyone.